You're listening to 100 p.m. in New York City, episode 60. p.m. is the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product managers across five great cities to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product. Today's guest is Natalie Gibraltar, Director of Product at Squarespace. If you'd like to learn more after the show, be sure to visit our website at 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for hot topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm your host, Suzanne Abate, product coach and founder of The Development Factory. Let's dive right in and meet Natalie. I'm Natalie Gibraltar, director of product at Squarespace. Natalie, I want to start with something really important. At least it's important to me, which is that you worked at Kind Snacks. Mm-hmm. I love a Kind Bar. I think everyone loves a Kind Bar. That's maybe that's a result of you. You did social marketing. Have you had like a million almond bars in your lifetime as a result? <laughs> I've had my fair share. <laughs> um, one of the things that I did at Kind was start their field marketing program. We hired a team of 15 people across the U.S. to demo Kind Bars and have people try them out. And so in that process, certainly ate a lot myself. So not only did you eat a lot, you're actually responsible for... For other people <laughs> Yeah. a ton. Okay, well, these are the hard-hitting questions that our audience wants to know. <laughs> All right, so that was... It was social marketing manager. And was that kind of like first gig right out of school or was there stuff before that? Um, It was. I graduated from university, lived in Argentina for a year where I uh, worked for different nonprofits and did a lot of journalism and sort of tried to figure out what I was excited about. Before I moved to Argentina, I actually interned for three months with a nonprofit called One Voice, which was the nonprofit that kind used to be linked to in terms of their social mission. So 5% of the profits of Kind Bars used to go to the PeaceWorks Foundations, of which One Voice was part of, uh, that worked to foster peace in conflict-ridden regions. It was not something that people sort of really quickly connected between here are these bars that taste delicious and are good for you, and 5% of the profits go to peace in the Middle East. So I was actually hired by the CEO of KIND after having this internship at One Voice to work to change the social mission of KIND from Peace in the Middle East to fostering kindness. And so social marketing manager was a bit of a new role for us, to be fair. The the team was le- fewer than 10 people at the time. Yeah. And so like any fast-growing startup, I was wearing many hats. We were doing a couple of million dollars in sales. By the time that I left, we were doing hundreds of millions, if you can imagine that growth over that time period. And so my main focus was around how do we develop a social mission around developing kindness? Uh, There were many aspects of that, both from a brand perspective and a product perspective and an organizational perspective, but also was able to do a lot of other things while I was there, like working on partnerships, like getting us into Starbucks and things of that nature. Very cool. So you're doing all of this kind of nonprofit work and and that the idea that comes up in my mind is you're looking for a way to make an impact. Mm -hmm. So when you found yourself now kind of on the the commerce side, right? Because I think people wrestle with this a lot is like, do I want to do something meaningful or should I go into business? Mm -hmm. And was there any reconciliation that you had to do for yourself at that time to make that switch or it was more seamless? What I care about is having social impact. And I think that that can take many different forms. When I graduated from university, 
nonprofit work was kind of the most obvious way that I interpreted that. But really quickly having the opportunity at Kind, which was a for-profit company, to develop a social mission and a social platform on this mass consumer brand and having impact in that way was really exciting. I actually left to start another nonprofit in the Middle East and ran that for a few years, ran my website on Squarespace where I felt really empowered because I was able to build this website that looked like I had paid someone $30,000 to build it for me. And in fact, I had done this all myself, paying $12 a month. My board was super, super impressed. And for me, it shed a lot of legitimacy and credibility on this harebrained idea that I had about how I wanted to change the world. And I thought that that was really empowering. We were able in our first year to raise $100,000 from major corporations to get this idea off the ground. And you know, when I think about the work that we do at Square Squarespace, which is, you know, a company that is not even like kind a, which considered itself a quote, not only for profit company. I still find the work that we're doing here to be incredibly socially impactful. We're democratizing people's ability to get ideas off the ground and creating a level playing field for that in a really accessible way. And so that's actually the thing that really excites me about the impact of what we're having here. And it doesn't really matter to me that it's not a non-for-profit. Uh, that is sort of the way that we're achieving this. And in fact, it's just a question of what is the best model for the kind of impact that you want to have. Okay, well, I mean, I'm going to have lots of questions about Squarespace, but the one that's coming up for me is, so you started as a customer. Mm -hmm. Did that actually lead you here intentionally, or that was just a happy coincidence that you had had all of this, this positive experience? That did lead me here intentionally. I, so I was running this nonprofit in the Middle East, which I really was excited about and cared a lot about, and ultimately made the decision to move back to New York for personal reasons. My now husband was here, and it was just unsustainable uh, situation to be in ocean and a sea apart. <laughs> and I think as anyone who runs a startup knows that when you sort of have a baby in that form, it's really hard to figure out, you know, to figure out, well, what do you do next? And so for me, actually, Squarespace was the only company that occurred to me that I should look into because I was so inspired by that product and what it had done for me so recently. I thought, I thought that it was just really cool the opportunity that it gave me and I'm someone who gives credit where it's due and I really feel like it helped me going into a fundraising meeting or talking to a volunteer for people to feel like this is a real thing. Right. <laughs> it didn't even occur to me at the time to reach out to Squarespace directly because they weren't they were only hiring engineers at the time. But I happened to be connected to the COO at the time who I hadn't even realized was the COO at Squarespace. I thought that he was doing BD at Etsy. <laughs> okay. um, and when we ended up meeting, it ended up being at the Squarespace office. And he ended up introducing me to actually five different companies but called me the next day and said, listen, in the back of my mind, I've been thinking about hiring someone for business development at Squarespace, and I think that you would be perfect for it, because I had sat there for an hour and told him about how impactful <laughs> the product had been in my life. And so it sort of was a coincidence and not that I ended up there, um, but I think sometimes things are meant to happen in that way. So Squarespace wasn't hiring for product, they weren't hiring for business development at the time. Actually, when I applied, I didn't even know what product was, even though I had been doing it for years. Uh, one of the things that I had done at Kind in developing the social mission there was we developed a essentially an online platform to encourage people to do kind acts that had a number of different iterations to right. it. Uh, and that was really the first time that I built product without realizing that was what it was called. I just thought that I was 
problem solving. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even in my nonprofit work, I developed product without realizing that that's what it was called. But I think I also did a number of other things. And so at the time, I was thinking that the thread between these really different things that I was doing was more around business development, getting into Starbucks, fundraising, <laughs> developing teams of volunteers and things of that nature. Yeah. So that made sense to me. The moment that I joined at Squarespace though, it became really clear that the way to help develop the business was through product here. And so I very quickly started doing that work. Fast forward six right. years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to fast forward too much about six years, but I want to ask for the benefit of our listeners, because I never like to take for granted that everyone knows the products that we're speaking sure. about. What is Squarespace? So Squarespace is a platform that helps people build brands. We're most well known for being a website building platform. So people use our product to build websites without having to know how to code. They start with the template, put in their own contact, can really content, can customize it and make it their own. We also have a number of different product lines that have developed over the course of the years, sort of before and after the creation of the website. So in terms of buying domains, developing e-commerce capabilities for people who are selling online or running different parts of their business and marketing tools. But our real focus is on helping people differentiate themselves and build their brands throughout all these different touch points. Exciting. So who is Squarespace for then? Who is that ideal customer that finds your product and says, ah, this is the one I've been waiting for. So our customers often tend to be people who really have a very strong story that they want to tell and are finding ways to be able to differentiate themselves in the way that they tell that story. So again, within Squarespace, it's really easy to make very customizable websites without having to have technical knowledge or figure out how to combine a lot of different plugins to make this sort of work or look the way that you want it to look. I think the way that we often differentiate in terms of customer base is we have a lot of people who aren't selling commodity things or aren't building commodity businesses, but rather are doing things that are really different and need a platform to be able to express that difference in a, in a very special way. Yeah, I'm a Squarespace customer, actually. I didn't tell you that coming in because I didn't want it to skew how you would talk to me, but I am a Squarespace customer and, and an advocate for it. And one of the things certainly that I do appreciate is the ease of use. And, and I work in tech. I mean, we build web products at my company, but there is just so much value in being able to drop in. And as somebody who values design, and I'm looking around, these offices are beautiful. There is clearly a sense that aesthetic is woven in. That's mm -hmm. intentional? Is that kind of part of the principles here? Completely. One of our values is making design accessible. We think that it's such an important component of expression of ideas. And one of the things that really sets people apart, and often it can feel like something that is expensive or too complicated or out of reach. And one of our values is really making that accessible for anyone in any stage of their life cycle on any budget. Wow. So you've been here six years. Was that the beginning? Were you here at, you know, employee number five type of level? What was the company like? Surprisingly not. Squarespace is actually 15 years old. 15? Mm -hmm. wow. And by okay. the time I joined, there were 70 people in the company. Now, we've grown a lot since then. We're about 770 people now. But it wasn't the beginning of the company. Uh, I did join at a really interesting time where we were completely rebuilding the platform from scratch. And I think that 
one of the interesting things in product is that it continues to evolve and the things that get you from point A to point B or point B to point C aren't necessarily the things that get you for, from, <laughs> to, from point C to point D. And when I had joined, um, you know, we'd been growing, but the growth had been fairly flat at the time. And, you know, the ways in which you could build a website had changed a lot as technology had changed a lot. And so we were launching what at the time we called Squarespace 6, which was a complete rebuild of the platform and actually was quite novel in terms of what are, what were the kinds of ways that you could build websites and really visually engaging multimedia ways and in a very all-in-one way that was not necessarily usual at the time where you sort of had more traditional blogging platforms or portfolio platforms or website platforms, but it was really hard to do all those things effectively in one place. One of the exercises that I I do in in some of my product workshops with with enterprise teams actually is around product lifecycle management. Mm -hmm. And we play pin the product on the lifecycle and we (laughs) use real world products as a way of kind of opening up the discussion. And Squarespace is one of the ones that we use. And Mm -hmm. so I invite folks to say, is Squarespace growing? Is Squarespace in maturity? Is it in decline? Where do you think Squarespace is in the product lifecycle curve? I think Squarespace is growing, growing fast, which is really exciting and interesting for us. It's growing in a different way than it was six years ago. Um, I think growing in a more mature way than it was. but. I think it's really just a matter of new ways to grow and new types of challenges that come with that as opposed to necessarily thinking about whether or not you're actually moving forward. That statement that you made is interesting to me, growing in more mature ways. And and given that you've basically watched the company 10x Mm -hmm. in, in scale since you've been here, what does that mean for you to grow in a mature way? Or what does it look like maybe? Yeah. There are multiple dimensions on which to answer that question. One of the ways in which we're growing in a more mature way is in our understanding of who our user base is and in also understanding that that user base is quite different than who they were a number of years ago. And so when we first started building Squarespace, and this was actually a really interesting, very explicit value when I joined, we said that we were building products for ourselves and scaling them to the masses. So if you think about that, you're assuming that the people who are using the product are just like you. (laughs) And we built for use cases that we understood really well. Our team here at the time were photographers, they were bloggers. Those were the things that we did really, really well because we were able to build a new gallery tool and experience very viscerally whether or not it actually solved our problem. And that actually allowed us to scale really quickly in the beginning because there were tens of thousands of people who indeed (laughs) were like us, who were having those same problems that we were solving. But once you sort of grow past that, even if you're solving for photographers, there are photographers who are not like you. And when you expand beyond into also different use cases, like e-commerce, which was actually the first product that I worked on here, you know, you might not actually understand those problems as intimately as you do some other problems. So I actually started working on product here quite organically because we were building an e-commerce feature and it was the first time that we weren't building something for ourselves. And so we had to really understand who is this customer? What are their problems and are we building the right things to solve for them? So with that, even just the way that we developed product became quite different. And that sort of also evolved as our user base grew 
even in those cases, as I mentioned, like photographers that we knew really well, but we still had to understand the photography use cases that we didn't intimately understand before. And so for us bringing user research into our into our product development process was actually something that came later in our process because it wasn't sort of a, an integral part of our process from day one. Right. Actually integrating product management into our process was something that emerged five years ago rather than something that we started with 15 years ago where we just had every engineer and designer intimately understanding this, this product and you know, solving, solving the problem that they understood. Right. And so those were, are some of the ways in which we've, we've uh, developed quite a bit over the last yeah, six years in particular. What's interesting, I love that description, and, and I'm curious because, to, to go back to product lifecycle management, inevitably that crossing the chasm moment is that mm -hmm. moment of kind of embracing a more mainstream or a wider audience view, as right. you describe. And where a lot of companies can fail in those moments is alienating existing users mm -hmm. in the attempt to go after the new user base, but not quite succeeding in creating the value for the new user base. Mm -hmm. And obviously that didn't happen here, but do you remember a tension of moving away from those photographers that you knew, those bloggers that you knew toward these, these other kind of avatars that you don't know as well? and a feeling of losing the way or maybe even a resistance about going toward? Or was it all just like, we're excited to build stuff for people and now we're building stuff for these people too? Culturally, there was more of an excitement rather than a feeling of pushback or tension in terms of that expansion. The way that we've generally built products at Squarespace has been building systems and paradigms that we believe can extend to a number of different use cases rather than just one. So our platform wasn't built in a way to just be able to serve photographers or just be able to serve bloggers. And so the idea of expanding was actually really, really exciting. And I think that we've really tried to keep an eye on those key consumers that have that have used our platform traditionally, and frankly, we've continued to grow and, and over-index in those, in those verticals uh, still today. That being said, there's always going to be a new crop of platforms that solve in a very, very, very niche way for a particular audience. And I think, like in any prioritization and trade-off decisions that you need to make in product, you need to essentially decide how niche do you want to go and where the how far do you need to go to be able to support these audiences while also remaining broad enough to be able to serve the, the larger user base yeah this is i mean this is such a fundamental part of the growing journey as well and and i i've talked a lot about we're so obsessed with growth that i think we don't give credit where it's due to say it's perfectly admirable to create a niche business and own it and say i only want to be that and you know Basecamp for me is such a great example of a company that recognizes in order to be broad in order to be accessible we need to be simple and flexible and what that's going to mean is we're going to have customers saying can you add you know xyz feature could you make it you know more usable for developers and and you have to be okay with saying no that's what jira is for go try trello for that and having i guess that north star or that right. that vision becomes really important, I would think, in those moments. And actually, for us, being really clear that breadth is really 
important for us from a strategic standpoint has been really helpful in terms of making sure that people are aligned as we're making those decisions around how deep do we want to go. Right. So you said before that product management sort of didn't really exist. You know, when, when you joined six years ago, now you are the director of product. I imagine product very much exists. Can you tell us a little bit about how product is structured in terms of teams and process here? Let's start with teams, maybe. It took a while for product to become a centralized function here. Uh, it actually started in a really decentralized way. We started with e-commerce and then it emerged in a number of different teams until we got to a place where we said, actually, this needs to be a centralized function that is consistent across all teams, that every engineer and designer knows what to expect from this function. And it really serves a very, very clear role. And we hire for that function <laughs> consistently and we measure performance against that function consistently. And organizationally, we, we manage that function in a very, very consistent way. So today, every product team around a particular area of the product has a product manager, has dedicated engineers and product designers that are working on that specific area. So we have balanced teams that start and finish products together mm -hmm. and really own that problem set holistically. And can you, just for context, give us an example? Because thinking about Squarespace as a platform, mm -hmm. sometimes the mindset goes to, well, that is the product. So what are the, the products kind of inside of that? Sure. We have a product team around our content management system, our CMS, uh, which is broken up into smaller components of different aspects of the content management system that different teams own. We have a product team around e-commerce that is again broken up into smaller parts of that system. So we have people who own essentially the core platform, so the ability to sell things <laughs> on the platform. And then we have teams that own different end-to-end -end experiences of commerce. So for example, we have a retail team that supports people who are selling physical and, um, and service goods on the platform and support things like our cart and checkout experiences for those types of users. We have a team that is working on donations and that type of e-commerce. And as we launch different forms of e-commerce, we expand different product teams around that. Around that. Yeah. Um, we have teams that are working on our marketing tools. So we have teams that are working on our domains product. And again, that is split up into smaller teams that are owning different parts of that process. We also have teams that own cross-functional initiatives like internationalization or conversion and things of that nature that are working more cross-functionally across these teams to make product improvements. Do you know offhand how many product managers are here? We have 16 product managers. 16 product managers. So what I think is so interesting is at scale, and, and I think it's safe to say Squarespace is at scale and, and continuing to grow, as, as you say, dependencies, <laughs> right? So you're, you're talking about the necessity of organizing teams and running them in an organized way. You're talking about these kind of self-contained pods. And then when you think about CMS and e-commerce, they're really enmeshed from a user experience perspective. So how does that get negotiated? You know, who gets to decide about the button, for example? <laughs> You're nodding because you said, oh, this is the fight that we deal with every week. <laughs> Someone's fighting over a button. 
So the fights don't normally happen on a button. <laughs> They're usually broader than that. Um, but this is really the core of where the tensions lie. And I think that this is where, frankly, things evolve as you grow as an organization. The tools and methodologies that helped us to reconcile those dependencies and priorities when we were five teams aren't the same tools and processes that help us when we're 16 teams. And frankly, there's, there are growing pains that we go through on exactly this point. How is the experience of being in product leadership for you different from the experience of being a product manager, right? Like, how do you spend your time now as opposed to six years ago, four years ago, three years ago? Well, one way is really focusing on how organizationally can we get more things done. So to your previous question, I'm spending much more time figuring out how to be structure the organization in a way that alleviates dependencies and creates more autonomy in teams when we sort of grow in ways where those new dependencies are pushing up against our ability to ship as fast as we used to be able to do. Um, spending much more time, obviously, on, on hiring and making sure that our team is really set up to succeed and grow as our organization is growing. Spending less time in the day-to-day -day details of every single product decision than, than I used to when I was actually in charge of, of the shipment of the actual details of the product. Yeah. Is it hard? giving up those things because I think there are probably a lot of folks in our audience who are maybe at that point where they're ready to step into leadership or, or looking to make that next move and I'm wondering what do you have to give up in terms of experience in order to get that next pay grade, that next title, that next area of responsibility? I think the biggest thing to give up is more of a is more temporary than long term, which is if you're probably at the point where you're thinking about making this move, you're probably really good at what you're currently doing, which is you're really good as an independent contributor. You're probably really good at executing and on owning the actual products that are shipping. And when you're moving towards scaling yourself in terms of helping other people be good at that, it's just a new skill set, right? And so there's a period at, at which you're trying something that is really new and you're in the same way that you're not probably going to get all the the answers exactly right the first time that you build a product, you're not going to get it right the first time that you're a manager and scaling yourself in that team. And so I think the biggest thing that you're giving up is that feeling of, oh, I totally know exactly what I'm doing and I'm killing it every moment. And it takes some time. I mean, at least for me, it took really a year to feel like I am a good manager <laughs> and to feel the same level of satisfaction of success from the core function of what I was doing in the same way that I was in product. Right. And and also, I think in that process, it was really, it sort of, it took me a year to feel like, like, yes, I can do this really well. And yes, this is actually the place for me to, to focus my energy and where I can be most impactful. And it, I think there's also sometimes a process there to, to figure out, is this the thing that I want to do? Yeah. And so I think what you give up is sort of the immediate confidence <laughs> in what you're doing, but at the same time, you're, you're growing so much more. Yeah, well, and, and the product changes, right? Because based on what you're describing, the product now becomes the process. The product becomes the, the team. team, the product becomes the culture and, and... And the overall strategy. Yeah. So we do a segment here on the show called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. And I'd like to ask you, 
What advice do you have to offer somebody who might be listening in that is either new in the product management role or is more experienced but in a what I would call PM adjacent role but is kind of looking over at what the product managers are doing and going that seems cool I want to be there how do you get into product from my experience I came from a product adjacent role I came from doing business development <laughs> into doing product and I think that the the most important thing is to actually just demonstrate product thinking and get close to who your users are and just demonstrate that you can solve their problems. And so I think if you have opportunities to actually talk to whoever that consumer is, and you can demonstrate this in a number of different ways. One is if you do have already product management in your company if, and you do have a product that you can work on actually spending time with that consumer and developing a product brief, like showing that you have insight or an idea around how to have impact and address their needs can be one way to do that. Another way would be if you think about a user in your role in a different capacity. So for example, if you're in on a data science or analytics team and you think about your users as product managers or engineers that are making decisions based on the information that you have, can you productize a solution and demonstrate that product thinking in something else that you're doing that can help, de help demonstrate that you, are, you have good product sense, that you think strategically about these, about these problems and that you can do the job? I wonder if people who hear advice like that, and, and I think it's, it's practical and it's right, if the next question or fear that comes up is, can I really take up permission to do that though, right. right? Because it's one thing to say, yeah, just go out and talk to the customers. But I also know that some organizations, especially larger ones like this, have like really kind of clear boundaries. Like that's customer success terrain. You can't just get out of the building now. You have to go down the hall in the building and talk to customer success. So how can you, I'm, I know I'm, I'm putting on the spot a little bit here, but how can you, feel okay to take up that permission, demonstrate that eagerness, but also not alienate your director of product or the other product managers who are like, hey, who's this person? That's totally fair. I think you could potentially try to think about how do I do that on a smaller scale and be creative and resourceful about it in the same way that you would if you were a product manager. Let's say you work for a consumer product and you just interview five of your friends that are using that product and still show that you can demonstrate, I spoke to these people and here's what I learned from them and here are the actions that I took. Or let's say you're in an enterprise tool, can you be resourceful with your network around people who work in companies that aren't necessarily clients but work in adjacent fields and interview them to show just even that eagerness of understanding what that problem is. And so I don't think that you need to sort of say that you're, <laughs> um, you don't need to say that you're representing the company in that capacity, but I think that there are a lot of really simple ways on a very small scale that aren't threatening to show that you have the, that you take the initiative and you have the structural thinking around those types of problems to be successful if you were put in a role where you were given that permission that you would know what to do with it. Yeah, I love those examples and, and interviewing especially because I think 
you could spend your entire career as a product manager learning how to be a great interviewer, right? We all have to do it, and, and if we're good, we do it. And if, you know, most of us probably don't do it nearly as much as we should do it, but asking the right kinds of questions is an art form unto itself, mm -hmm. right? What about hard lessons learned, either for yourself as, as you were growing up in product or where you've seen in the product managers that you manage where the theory of product management that people read about and study and the reality of how it works in a fast-paced organization. One thing that is topical for me right now that's on my mind is around the difference between the theory and the practice of how to make decisions and get alignment around those decisions. Ultimately, product is, is about soft power, right? It's about getting people aligned around here's the problem that we're solving and shared ownership around what that problem is and bringing people together to come up with the best possible solution. But ultimately, you're still responsible for making sure that that solution gets shipped and it's a good one. <laughs> and in that, I think that there is a real dance between sometimes making hard calls to move things forward and getting consensus <laughs> to getting people aligned around those decisions. And if you're on either end of the spectrum of just making decisions without taking into account what, people's, what people think, you're going to lose that soft power. You're going to, frankly, lose, I think, the ability to create good solutions there because you aren't bringing in your partners as partners for that solution. But on the flip side, if you are too focused on making sure that everyone's aligned and there's consensus building, it's really hard to actually move things forward a lot of the time. And so I think that that is actually something that's really, really hard for people to get right. And I have yet to find a product manager that gets that right all the time. <laughs> I think that, you know, some people just in personality and nature tend to skew more towards one place or another. Sometimes even what's your strength sometimes becomes your, your weakness yeah. in relation to this. And so I think that that is just an area where every single product manager needs to be consistently thinking about how do I need to calibrate here in order to move this forward and make sure that I have alignment in the right way. And as I'm working with different people and different teams, how do I need to shift where I am on that spectrum of making the calls, listening, bringing in, compromising in some cases in order to be able to, to move things forward? Yeah, I love that you've shared that perspective. I think it's, it's real, right? You have to have confidence but you also have to have empathy and you have to have good stakeholder relations. And, and it, humility. Yeah. It makes sense too that it's very much on your mind because this goes back to what I'm thinking about as leadership because it seems like it is now incumbent upon you to cultivate a culture of decision-making, right? So that presumably you have product managers and you're 16 that are living on one end of that spectrum or another. And so how do you as a leader then begin to, you don't have to answer this by the way, this is just rhetorical, <laughs> but to be meditating on how do I teach decision-making or encourage decision-making and where do I put in definitive rules that say, consult me here, but not necessarily here. That's it's tricky, this director of product stuff. What do you love about product? You mean you found your way into it. You're not going anywhere anytime soon, I don't think. So why, why do this job and not something else? 
I love building things that solve people's problems and delight people. And it's really exhilarating to see people actually use the things that you're building, whether it be a snack bar <laughs> or whether it be an online platform or whether it be a program. I'm going to go to the airport at some point and uh, see kind bars everywhere. And now I'm like only ever going to think of you whenever <laughs> I see them at Starbucks. And be like, that's Natalie. She's left her print. You did make it. You succeeded in making an impact in ways you weren't even accounting for at the time. Two last questions for you. The first is just about resources. Do you have any recommended reads or blogs or podcasts that you think are, are worth checking out? So many. <laughs> I have to be perfectly honest that with an eight-month-old also, I, I read less these days <laughs> than I would like. Fair. But a few resources that I really love and use a lot are the Google Venture Sprint book. Um, that has been something that I've, I've loved a lot and have had a lot of our team read and use. I think the key question there is figuring out what is the right answer <laughs> using that tool. Yeah. So I think it's a very powerful tool to use. I think along the lines of design thinking, you talked about how what an important aspect design is, both in terms of the product that we build here, but also how we how we build our own product. I love the book, The Design of Everyday Things. Yeah, great. Um, and I think that that's a really extraordinary book to read. I also really love the way that sometimes books or articles can help facilitate conversations between teams that might be otherwise hard to have. Okay. So a few examples that come to mind, you know, we've had sometimes teams that are struggling with figuring out the right way to apply stand-ups to their process, right? They're, they're doing stand-ups, but they're not working all that well. One article that I love to recommend there is It's Not Just Standing Up by Martin Fowler. Okay. And one of the things that I found that has worked really well with teams is when everyone reads this article about challenges that can occur in stand-ups, it can help sometimes unearth some of the challenges that they're having, or maybe some of even the challenges that are ahead of them in this really kind of low-risk <laughs> way of talking about some of these problems that I have found really effective for teams to just very quickly implement change. Another example of that is Thanks for the Feedback, which is a book about the art of receiving feedback. And for teams that are having difficulty having some of these hard conversations, having actually people together read this book and having that opportunity to be a really safe space around, hey, can we do this differently and change our dynamic? I think that literature can be really helpful in that yeah, way. The, the, more great practical leadership tips in the midst of uh, practical recommended resources. So thank you. Last question. I feel like I want a sound effects to get to do. <laughs> Is there a personal or professional mantra or philosophy that you use to kind of guide who you are in the world, either either in the world more holistically or, or certainly here as a leader at Squarespace? I wouldn't call it a mantra of sorts, but one thing that I think has certainly influenced me a lot um, has been losing my mother, okay. um, who, who passed away last year at an early age and, and who was sick for quite a while before that. And I think one of the things that that has made me always think about is that life is short and it's important to focus on what's really important and to not lose perspective of that. And I think that is true in both my personal and professional life. What is the, what are the problems that you should really care about solving? Do the people that you care about know that you care about them, both at work and at home? And I think just continuing to make sure that you always have that perspective around what's truly important 
beautiful closer, Natalie Gibraltar, Squarespace. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to 100PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in the Apple Store, at Google Play, or on Stitcher, or leave us a great review so others can help find us. If you want to get in touch directly, email me, Suzanne, at 100productmanagers.com, or visit us on the web. Thank you.